Mark chapter 9, verse 30 and 32, as you see on your programs, is where we're going to be at this morning. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me, Mark 9, 30 to 32. Once you've found it, go ahead and stand for the reading of God's Word. And the Word of the Lord says, They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. Lord, we come to you once more as we turn our attention to your word. Open our hearts and minds to receive what you have for us this morning. Be with me, Lord, your servant, as I exposit your word that I might do so faithfully and clearly. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. You may be seated. So as we continue to look and walk through Mark chapter 9, let us remember what just happened. I know it's been a couple of weeks, but let us remember that Christ had just finished healing the boy with the evil spirit. Now he and his disciples, as it says here, are passing through Galilee. Remember, this is where Christ began his ministry. But we see here that he doesn't return to Galilee to do any more ministry. This time he is just passing through. Apparently, he didn't want to do any ministry there. As it says, he did not want anyone to know. In other words, he didn't want anyone to know that he was there. Maybe he was facing some opposition. Maybe he was not welcome. As he says elsewhere, a prophet is not welcome in his own home. But for whatever reason, he didn't want to do any type of ministries there. So he continues on through. Verse 31 says, he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. Now, if you've been following along with us as we've been walking through Mark, you know that Christ has told his disciples something like this before. This is what's known as his passion prediction. Mark mentions three of these, and this is the second one that we see. And as we will see as we move along in the sermon, Christ is revealing a bit more to them than he previously has revealed. He continues on and tells them of his resurrection. He says, after three days, he will rise. But as we've seen before, the disciples do not understand. They've yet to come to terms with the reality that their view of the kingdom and their eschatological nature of the Messiah had been wrong all along. They were not ready to accept the hard truths that they were hearing. And as it says in verse 32, they were afraid to ask him, fearing perhaps that he might get upset with them for not understanding or maybe fearing the reality of the hard truths that Jesus was revealing. This morning, I want us to pay closer attention to what Christ is revealing in this what's known as passion prediction. Because there are some profound things that he is telling us in these few passages. I titled this sermon, The Death of Christ Revealed, because I want us to focus on what Christ is revealing to his disciples and in turn to us about his death. What is Christ revealing to us about his death? That is the question that we will answer this morning. And number one, his death was caused by God. Look at the first half of verse 31. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. Again, Christ is telling his disciples what must come to pass. This is his passion prediction, but notice how different it is than his first passion prediction that we read about in Mark chapter 8. In chapter 8, Christ says that the Son of Man must suffer many things at the hands of the chief priests and the scribes. And here, he says that the Son of Man is going to be delivered. 
He's saying the same thing, yet he's saying something different. Here, he's giving us more insight into who all is involved in his death. We already heard about the chief priests and the scribes. We already heard they were involved. And here, he brings in another character. As he says, the Son of Man is going to be delivered. This means that there is another hand involved, someone who is doing the delivering. Have you ever had anything delivered to your home? If you have, and I'm sure you have, you know that it just didn't magically appear at your front door. Someone had to deliver it. Although there are times we wish a pizza would magically appear at our front door. But we know that whatever was delivered had to have a deliverer. And who is the person who is delivering Christ into the hands of these men? Some will say the Jews. Some will say the chief priests and the scribes. And while they all played a part and had something to do with the delivering, ultimately it was God who delivered. It was God the Father who delivered the Son into the hands of men. Yes, we can look at the narrative and we can see all the characters involved. We can see Judas, we can see the Pharisees, we can see the high priest, but all this was done by the hand of God. Acts 2, verse 22, we read this. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. This was Peter here preaching his famous sermon on the day of Pentecost. And here he says that this Jesus was delivered. How? Because he made a mistake? Because the people got the best of him? No, because this was the definite plan of God. In other words, while you are responsible for his death, you had no control over it. You had no power over it. You couldn't take his life even if you wanted to. A thousand men on a thousand chariots couldn't take his life unless he gave it up willfully. John 10, 17 says this, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I might take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Theologians often refer to this twofold obedience of Christ seen in the scriptures. There is his active obedience and there is his passive obedience. His active obedience is what he did to fulfill the law on our behalf. By his active obedience, he did for us what we could not do for ourselves. He obtained the righteousness that was required by God. He fulfilled the covenant of works that we could not keep. Where we felt Christ succeeded by his active obedience and by his perfect keeping of the law. Now, his passive obedience refers to his willingness to humble himself as a servant unto death. It refers to his part in the covenant of redemption, fulfilling his role as the one who would redeem mankind by being sent to die on the cross. We see this most clearly in Philippians 2.6. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Christ, the Son, who is the same form, meaning the same nature, 
The same essence as God the Father did not count it robbery to be equal with God the Father. But yet he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, humbling himself, and being obedient unto death. Obedient to who? Obedient to the Father. His death was by the will of God. It wasn't a plan B. It wasn't a plan that God had to scramble to come up with. It wasn't something that was done reluctantly. In fact, it was something that he was pleased to do. Some will say, how can you say that? That's scandalous. How can you say that it pleased the father to send his own son to die, to send his own son to be crucified on the cross? How can you say that? Because it was his will. And God, in his infinite righteousness, does everything for his own good pleasure. Isaiah 53.10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. What does that tell us? It tells us that we shouldn't be surprised to hear that God was responsible for the death of his son. It's right here in his word. You know, I hear so many people, even Christian apologists, always trying to make excuses for God. Always trying to explain away the difficult things of God. God doesn't need a press secretary. He, he doesn't need anyone to spin his word for him. If there's something about God that seems too difficult for me, then the problem is me and not with God. The problem is with me and not his word. So the question becomes why? Why would God put his own son to death? Why would Christ humble himself to the point of death? Answer, because of his love. It is because of the love he has for his people. The famous text, John 3.16, we've known it since we were children. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have eternal life. What great love is this? As Christ says elsewhere, there is no greater love than for someone to lay down his life for his friends. And this is what Christ did for you and I who believe on his name. This is what the Father gave for you and me. Christ didn't have to include the reason for the father giving up the son in John 3:16. If you know the story in John chapter 3, Christ is speaking to Nicodemus about being born again. Christ could have easily said, God sent his son so that whoever believes in him would not perish and have eternal life. And that would have been enough, and that would have been true, and that would have been sufficient. Because to be born again, you must believe in the son. To be born again, you must place your faith in Jesus Christ for the salvation of your sins. To be born again, to be saved, that is all that needed to be said. But yet Christ said more, didn't he? Christ revealed more. He revealed the reason for the Father sending his Son. He revealed the reason he sent his Son to make a way for sinners. And what was it? It was his love. Whoever believes in him tells us the how, for God so loved the world, tells us the why. Have you ever doubted God's love? Have you ever felt that God has abandoned you and left you alone? My friend, look no further to the cross. Look how much the Father gave up for you. Look at what the Son accomplished for you. We know how to feel love. We know how to express love. We know how to say it. We know how to spell it multiple languages but how does it look like can you see it with your eyes some will say no i will say yes if you want to see love just look at the cross just behold the glory and the majesty of the cross 
For at the cross, the greatest expression of love in human history was on full display. At the cross, a sea of love was poured out. Just look to the cross. The first thing we see about the death of Christ is that it was caused by God, God the Father, as he delivered his son into the hands of men. And God the Son, being obedient unto death, even the death on the cross, gave his life for love. Amen. Let's go on. What else do we see about his death in these passages? Well, number one was that it was caused by God. Number two is that it was caused by man. Look again at the second half of verse 31. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. After God the Father fulfilled his role in delivering the Son into the hands of men, it was these men who had him killed. It was these men who were responsible for his death. Yes, God delivered, but they happily received. Let me go back again and read Acts 2.23. Again, this is from Peter's sermon. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. See, even though it was God's sovereign plan to have Christ crucified, it was still done at the hands of lawless men. They were responsible for his death, and they had to answer for his death. Yes, it was God who decreed. Yes, it was God who ordained the death of his son before the world began. But it was Pilate, and it was the Pharisees, and it was the scribes, and it was the Jews who had him killed, and they are accountable. And before we pack up our bags and go home, and before we announce case closed, before we say problem solved, we know who killed Jesus. We know who is responsible. Let us not forget the hand we played in all of this. We are not innocent. As much as we would like to place the blame on the wicked and lawless men of the first century, we too are responsible for his death. We had just as much a hand in it as they did. We're not blameless. You say, how? How can I be responsible for something that happened to someone else 2,000 years ago? How can I be responsible for a man's death when I wasn't even there? But yet your sin was there. Christ indeed carried your sin to the cross. It was your sin that drove him to the cross. When we look for who was responsible for having Christ killed, we can say, it was lawless man. And you know what? Count me in on that. I am one of the lawless. I am just as lawless as any of them. I had no regard for the law of God. I was a law unto myself. I did what I pleased. I followed my own passions and my own desires. I sought my own. I was not a slave to Christ. I was a slave to the world. We like to think that if we were at the death of Christ, we would be weeping and we would be mourning or we would be calling for them to release him. We like to think that we would be opposing the Roman authorities who were about to crucify him. The truth is, more than likely, we would have been calling for his death. We're not the thief on the cross saying, remember me when you come into your kingdom. We're the thief on the cross saying, save yourself and us. We're not the centurion standing in front of the cross saying, truly this man is the son of God. We're in the crowd standing in front of Pilate shouting, crucify him. We're not at the foot of the hill weeping with his mother. 
were at the top of the hill casting lots for his garments. Peter could have been preaching to me. He could have said of Christ, you, you crucified and killed. And I would have had no defense. I would have been guilty as charged. The only reason my Lord was on that tree was because of my sin. Colossians 2.13, and you who were dead in your trespass and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespass by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. What was nailed to the cross? Was it his hands? Was it his feet? Well, that it was, but it was much more. Paul says here in Colossians that it was our record of debt. In other words, it's what we owed God. It's what I owed God. What did I owe him? What did we owe him? We owed him death. The wages of sin is death. I am a sinner. I am at that front of the line. This is what I owe. I owe death because of my sin. I deserve to die. But instead, Christ died in my place. It should have been me on the cross. It should have been me receiving the full wrath of the Father, but it wasn't. He became sin who knew no sin so that we may become the righteousness of God. I did the crime, but Christ did the time. I owed, but Christ paid. I was the one guilty, but Christ received the sentence. We always like to spread blame around, don't we? Whenever we were kids and we got in trouble, what did we always do? Well, he did it too. Well, she did it too. If you have kids, that happens every day, doesn't it? We like to spread blame. We don't, we don't like to take responsibility. We don't like sole responsibility. Something goes wrong, we want to blame others. No one likes to take responsibility. We're seeing this play out in our culture at the moment, aren't we? People will blame each other for their situation, for their lives. It's because of what they did. It's because of what she did or he did. No one's taking responsibility. Everybody's putting the blame on others. Now, to be sure, there's some times where outside people and things contribute to our circumstances. But when it comes to our sin, we and we alone are responsible. We can pin it on someone else all we want. Oh, it was Adam. It was Eve. But we and we alone are responsible. Ezekiel 18. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. The prophet Ezekiel was speaking in a time where the people of Israel were blaming others for their situation. They were being oppressed or attacked by the Babylonians. And we know that God used the Babylonians to bring judgment on the people of Israel. And they were blaming their ancestors. And they were blaming everyone else. They were blaming their forefathers for the situation they were in. God says enough. Enough with passing the blame. Enough with making excuses. No longer will any of that be valid. Thus saith the Lord, the soul that sins will surely die. The wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself, not anyone else. It's the same for us. Our sin is our responsibility. There's no looking around. There's no blaming him or her, my parents, my wife, my husband, my children. It's just us and God. It's just me and my sin. And here's the wonder of it all. Here's the wonder. Although I'm responsible, although I am guilty, I am the one that did the sinning, and although I must own my sin, Jesus takes it from me. He asks for it, and he brings it to God himself. 
He's the one who bears the consequence of my sin. He's the one who takes the punishment for my sin. Isaiah 53, verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, spinned by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Because he was broken, we are made whole. Because he was captive, we are set free. Because he was wounded, as it says here in Isaiah, we have been healed. Christ's loss was my gain. His death was my life. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my riches gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. The second thing we see in this passage that Christ is revealing about his death is that mankind, which includes me, is responsible for the death of Christ. And number three, what else about his death is Christ revealing? His death is misunderstood. Look at verse 32. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. Again, the disciples did not understand what he was saying. Even though he had already told them something similar, they still didn't get it. And furthermore, they were afraid to ask him what he meant. It's the same today. The death of Christ is still misunderstood. People truly don't get what the cross is all about. If you were to ask people about the cross, and I've done it when we've been evangelizing, why did Jesus go to the cross? You hear the weirdest answers. You hear all sorts of answers. Oh, it was because he needed to pay the devil to free mankind. Oh, it was because he showed solidarity with the oppressed people. Oh, it was because he wanted to symbolize that we need to die for ourselves and become better people. Now notice, as some of those answers contain a little truth in them, but as we know, a little truth is often a whole lie. While it's true that his death freed mankind from the bondage of sin, and while it's true that in his humanity he was identifying with man, and while it's true that being united to Christ means we die with him, what's missing in all of this? The main purpose of the cross. What's missing is penal substitutionary atonement, which means that Christ's death was to satisfy the wrath and the justice of God. Again, we don't want to go there. Why? That's, that's not the God we want to serve. We want to make excuses for God. But his death was to satisfy the punishment that we deserve. This is why Christ went to the cross, to become the representative of man, to take on man's sin and consequently man's punishment. See, way back in the garden, God said to man, the day you disobey, you will die. Guess what happened? Man disobeyed. Man continues to disobey. What does that mean? Someone must die. Man must die. God is a God that cannot be mocked. He is a God who is just. And if he is truly just, then he must be held accountable to his own word and he must punish sinner with death. But yet it was Christ. It was Christ who became the representative. The cross is not some mere symbol to be worn around the neck. It's a reminder of the heavy price Christ paid to redeem us from death. Galatians 3.13 
Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hanged on a tree. We were cursed. We were cursed because of our disobedience to the law. Disobedience always brought upon curses and death. Obey and you'll live. Disobey and you will die. Yet as Paul says, Christ became the curse. And indeed, he became the curse to redeem us from the curse, satisfying the justice of God. One more thing to note. Notice how the disciples were afraid to ask. What were they afraid of? Well, they probably were a little afraid because Christ would have been frustrated with them because they still didn't get it. But I think what they were more afraid of was what they didn't want to hear. They were afraid that Christ might really mean what he was saying, that he would soon be killed at the hands of men. They hoped that when he was saying these things, maybe he was talking in hyperbole. Maybe he was using a metaphor. Maybe he was using a parable when he was saying that he was going to die. They hoped that it wasn't what, it, what they thought it was. When it comes down to it, the disciples feared the truth. They feared the true words of Christ. And when it comes down to it today, many fear the same truth. Many fear the truth of the cross. See, the disciples hoped that the cross would not be what it seemed to be. Why? Because that meant that Christ had to die. And Christ's death had consequences. They had consequences for the disciples because if he died, then guess what? They died because they were his followers. If he died, they must die. Those were some hard facts that the disciples weren't ready to face. And guess what? His death continues to have consequences today. The cross of Christ is not neutral. You don't stare at the cross and walk away unaffected. You either believe and receive through faith that he died in your place and he died for your sins, or you don't believe and you walk away in disobedience and continue walking as a curse. This is why hearts are cold to the gospel. This is why, as Romans says, people suppress the truth. Why? Because they don't want to face the truth. They're afraid of the truth. But it must not be suppressed. It must be proclaimed. It must continue because it is the truth that sets people free. It is the truth that is able to make dead men live. In these few passages, Christ is revealing to us who is responsible for his death. Again, no one takes his life. No one takes it from him without him willingly laying it down. This was done by the sovereign hand of God. Why? Why would he do this? Because of his love. His immense love that he has for his elect. His immense love that he has for his people. He's willing to give it all. It is the truth that is able to make dead men live. In these few passages, Christ revealed who was responsible. And again, God the Father, but also us, mankind. We are responsible. We put him to death. His death was the result of my sin. And this is the truth that I must understand. This is the truth that I must not suppress. I must not fear. 
No, on the contrary, I must proclaim it to the nations. I must proclaim it to everyone that would hear it. It must be proclaimed on top of the highest of mountains. For it is this truth that contains the gospel. The gospel, which is the power unto salvation for all who believe. Amen. Let us pray. Let us stand up and pray.